Welcome to High Energy Health, where together we explore the leading edge of wellness and happiness. I'm your host, Dawson Church. By choosing this time together, you're declaring your commitment to a positive mindset, elevated emotions, and a great life. Thanks for joining me for today's episode. John Gray. John is a friend. He is the author of the legendary bestseller, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, and his books sold over 50 million copies in 50 different languages in 150 different countries. He has a truly global reach. His latest book is called Conscious Men, A Practical Guide to Developing the 12 Qualities of a New Masculinity. Also, one of his favorite books of mine is called Staying Focused in a Hyper World. And for those of you who have a hard time staying on track, if you have difficulty pursuing your goals and being consistent about being with your life mission, this really is a book worth checking out because it shows you all the different dimensions of how you can stay focused. So I'd recommend you take a look at that. John is not only able to focus on the emotional aspects and the spiritual aspects of our lives, but also on the nutritional aspects of what might be holding us back. You can see more about all of that at his website, MarsVenus.com, MarsVenus.com. John, I am so delighted to welcome you here today. Well, Dawson, thank you so much. It's been a while, and it's always good to hear your voice, and I'm really happy to be on the show. Well, also, the topic of today's show is really my cutting edge, and I've been actually interviewing several people about this and getting fascinating answers. And what I've been mulling over for the last while is the whole concept of how we create, the whole concept of how we create, starting with a thought, starting with an idea, and then the neurobiology of how those impulses that travel through our neural pathways eventually become synapses, neurons, they become matter. And then from the brain, we create with our beliefs, with our thoughts, we then start to create material things outside of ourselves. And I've been so intrigued by people's stories of how ideas, beliefs, consciousness began inside their awareness, but eventually manifests outside as well. And so I would love to hear some stories from you, John, about how that has worked for you. Perhaps some stories of, of synchronicities that, that happened without you really understanding how they could possibly take shape, or perhaps highly unlikely events that have happened to you that have been a pivotal part of your own personal growth. So I'd love to just hear from you about, about what in your life have been those moments, those times when you've seen a really clear path of that thought, maybe a, a huge thought, like having a bestseller or having a, a big new project that then does manifest eventually in the material world as a fact. Well, uh, I guess since you brought in the idea of men are from Mars, women are from Venus, there was that started with an idea. <laughs> and many things in my life, uh, one thought changes the whole direction of my life. Uh, it was, I remember when I was, I'm going to go through a few and, and just show how a thought changed everything, but and it just came out of nowhere. But it was when I was a, a 19-year-old, uh, I had learned Transcendental Meditation and went off to a training course with Maharishi, who was the guru of the Beatles. And, you know, for 
me, it was all exciting and fun. And I remember arriving at over a 1,000 people there for one-month training. This is back in 1969. And I got there, and I sat in the back, and I just didn't like it at all being in the back. And I said to myself, I'm never going to sit in the back again. But it was, for me in my life, a lot of times my most important ideas came from a moment of suffering. I was really uncomfortable, and, and I said I felt the pain of not being able to really absorb and be close and other people being close to this wonderful source in front of me. So I just made that commitment. And the next morning I got up. I didn't know what I was going to do, but I, I got up early to go in there, and they wouldn't let me in. And they wouldn't let these other people in who are like VIPs. And so I just decided the next day I would become the usher on one of the doors and and planted myself in the front row. And people would say, well, who are you? And I'd say, I'm the usher. I'm in charge of this area. <laughs> I, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and, you know, I just, I didn't think in advance any of this stuff. This just sort of came right out of me. And then I later became the Marishi's assistant. And that was, again, a situation where, you know, he had had these two personal assistants. A couple of years later, I took lots of his teacher training programs. He had like, VIP people around him. I wasn't a VIP they're generally wealthy people, and he had two assistants that worked with him. And, you know, this was like a really inspiring person that I wanted to get to know and work for and so forth and be close to. And uh, both of his assistants were away because of family problems and one got fired. And so all of the VIPs were waiting in the morning uh, to be called into his room one by one by another. You know, he would buzz, and there was no assistant, and they're all waiting to go in, and they were going one after another. And I just put myself in row, and they kicked me off the floor. They said, You're nobody and so I was devastated again I was just devastated I didn't know what I was going to do I felt like it was my destiny to be his assistant and you know get to know him better and, and help run this company so to speak and well the next morning I got up early and just thought well I'll just go up there and maybe I'll get in before they come and then when they came the next person came along and he said what are you doing here and I just said I'm the new assistant and go <laughs> I kicked everybody up off the floor as they kept coming up which is what they'd done to me uh, and then I became the assistant it was uh, amazing <laughs> I had no competition I mean when I look back at the things I did but I just go there was no forethought for me it was just in the moment and, and you know there's many more details to all this but then later on after nine years of being with him you know I was uh, you know really saturated with this message and, and very enlightened, so to speak, a master of meditation, a teacher of meditation. And then my brother was bipolar, Jimmy, and I brought him to Switzerland where we were living at the time and taught him to train, you know, taught him meditation and advanced courses and so forth, but it didn't help his bipolar. It wasn't enough because there's a lot of uh, nutritional deficiency with bipolar. So with that, I just uh, I just couldn't bear to be really happy and successful and everything when my brother was suffering. So I just left one day. I just felt okay. I gotta go and <clears throat> got on a plane to California. And and of course there are. I was a celibate monk at the time. And you ask for things that are sort of out of the blue. Uh, <laughs> right synchronicity, but here I am following my heart to go help my brother. I have no idea what I'm going to do when I get there, but I just got to follow my heart. And I had this dream of, of uh, making love to a woman, and I end up at this house, and the woman is there, uh, you know, staying in a place, and it was it blew my mind. This was a person who said in my dream, so that's one of these things about a dream. And it wasn't the next day, you know, ended up making love with her. It was, and that was after nine years of celibacy, so that was quite an experience. Uh, 
then then I continued on, and I'll, I'll fast forward many, many years, and I'm married to my wife, Bonnie, and I'm teaching classes on gender differences. And I, I just, there was so much, uh, people loved the message, and at that time, it was so politically incorrect. There'd be some people that would just hear me talking about the differences between men and women, and would get upset. And I thought, I need to have a hook. I need something that will lighten this subject up so people won't take it the wrong way because they would take it as if I'm saying women should be barefoot in the kitchen and men should be ones who make the money and women can't have jobs, all that. That's what they just presume. Some people still think that's what the book is about, <laughs> but most people don't. So then what I, I remember just being in my heart, just going every day, just feeling I need to find an answer. And this went on for at least a year of just kind of like my prayer to the universe, which is I need a hook, I need a hook. I, and, and I felt suffering. I couldn't find it. I couldn't find it find it, my own hook. And I just happened to be taking an astrology course with my wife, Bonnie, and part of the course was understanding all the planets and what their value was. And the day before the next class, I was giving a talk on Men Are From Mars, and I'd recently seen the movie E.T., and I just happened to say, just, you know, you're talking along, and I just got this idea while I'm talking, just said, women, imagine your husband's in E.T., and they all laughed. And then some woman out of the audience said, well, where's my husband from? What planet is my husband front and I just said Mars and they laughed again and I said that is it that is my hook and I went back to the class the next day and uh, you know they had us acting out the planets so I picked Mars and, and of course the obvious one Bonnie picked out was the planet of love Venus and I came up with this whole idea of how to put my ideas on relationships into the context men are from Mars women are from Venus and so once again there was just that synchronicity of things coming together to fulfill my strong Strong, strong intention to find a way to introduce this idea to people without there being an immediate resistance to it. Yes, it's such an intuitive title as well. You say it to people and they get it right away. It doesn't require a lot of explanation. It doesn't even need a subtitle. People grok that, that idea immediately and then it makes intuitive sense to them. From there they go on that voyage of exploration with you. That, that's a remarkable story and an example of how I love the phrase you use, my prayer to the universe. You have that prayer to the universe for this solution to this dilemma of how to present these complex ideas in a simple way and then the universe seemingly in an unrelated way in the astrology class and that role playing obliged. And also just seeing the movie. So all these three things came together. It was just an amazing gift. A gift and, and, and then when I told, next time I told the story about it, I made up this little story about men and women from different planets got together, went on a honeymoon, everything was fine until they arrived on Earth and the atmosphere atmosphere was different and we experienced selective amnesia and forgot we were from different planets and that's where our problems occur. And every time I told that story, the hairs on my arm would stand up until, you know, for a good six years that would happen every time. And what's ironic is you know, you tell a story over and over. I'm just like so spontaneous. I like to just be in the moment. I didn't want to keep repeating the same story, but people kept begging me to do it. <laughs> I mean, they're friends. They go, now make sure you tell that story. So I thought maybe if I write a book, I won't have to tell that story again. <laughs> I didn't know that I'd keep talking about the differences the rest of my life, which I'm very happy to, but I, I, I don't really have to tell that elaborate story anymore because you don't want to, it's like the Rolling Stones playing the same. I can't get no satisfaction at every concert. <laughs> well, it's interesting because if you're a professional 
presenter or a speaker or, or a coach or a public figure, you actually do have to tell the same story over and over and over again. You may give the same keynote speech or a very similar one many, many times. And when I sit in the audience and listen to well-known speakers, I can really tell whether they're delivering what I call their canned rap. They just discovered this rap works well or whether it's still vital and novel and fresh for them in the moment. And it's really worth staying on your leading edge. That's actually why I'm doing this, this particular series of interviews because I, I don't know. I, I actually don't. There, there are things about this whole, this whole process of turning thoughts to things that really puzzle me. Some pieces of it I, I really understand well, like the neurochemistry of it, the genetics of it, what happens in our brains. And then there are parts that are very mysterious to me and so I'm uh, really on, on my own, own cutting edge. One thing, though, that you know, struck me about that story, John. what you're saying, because I'm one yes. of those speakers that every talk will be somehow different, although I'll convey some similar information. And, and so I've written so many, many books, you know, challenging different aspects of relationships. And I just recently... Uh, a week ago, finished a book, and I love the book. I'm in love with the book, and I've read it maybe 50 times before I sent it to my editors, and every time I changed it, every time I changed it, every time I improved it, and it was already good. I mean, it was already great, in my opinion, And and it, but it's like I, I bring the information in, and the consciousness that I'm that, that I am is simply just provides information. It says it's like pure intelligence, and that pure intelligence expands that information, and it's never ending in its expansion of the information. It's never ending in its clarity. You could I could just keep going on and on and on, making versions, expanding it. And of course, I, I ended up making two books by expanding it, but then I had to keep tapering it down. But you present something to consciousness, and the intelligence, which is within one's consciousness, will look at it, and it knows it and it also knows it better each time so there's just this knowing and I kind of go where does this come from it's just simply present it's an intelligence and I think it's the same intelligence that's constantly allowing our biology and every aspect of the universe to continue to adapt but what has to happen is we have to be able to access that higher consciousness that's within all of us it's who we are we have our limited ego type consciousness then we have this expanded consciousness which for me I experienced and found through meditation but it doesn't know anything. This is the interesting thing. I remember the Maharishi used to say, it's the field of all knowledge. And I would go to these meditations, and I go, but I know nothing more. <laughs> but but it's the, it's the ability to know something. See, we just take for granted, how do we even know things? There's a part of us that has the potential to know everything, and we put, a, put something in front of it, and it knows it. And it knows it through this mechanics of the brain and its experiences and so forth. But at the same time, it has this intelligence that's able to integrate that perception with everything else that you perceived before and bring it to a greater level of intelligence, connecting all these infinite dots together to bring the information forward. So I've always always just fascinated. I just sit in front of the computer looking at my work as, as we're having a conversation right now. Part of you is knowing what I'm saying and it's knowing it from your own experiences and from an additional perspective of what more you're going to know from it. That ability to link the two and then be that bridge and then find language to make that bridge clear to people is is a powerful gift and also a powerful challenge and I, I, I get that sometimes you have to work at it, you have to rework it, you have to re refine it revise it several times before you've really mastered the ability to present that, that what you discovered in an expanded consciousness to people in what might be a very struggling, limited suffering consciousness in a way that makes sense to them. And 
you know, you said something just now, which is the whole idea. When you take an idea, you know, they always say there's nothing new under the sun. And I always go, well, all my ideas are new. (laughs) I mean, there's a lot of guys who say, yeah, I just got it from books, but I don't read that many books. I do have life experience and I do have, you know, have an education and so forth. But what I write about, it's like a song that hasn't been written before. It's made with all the same chords for sure, but it, it's its own advancement of consciousness aware of what's available to us today in this collective consciousness of this planet. And I think that it's the thought leaders, the people that, are, that tend to awaken in people a new part of who they are because consciousness is always expanding. Our collective consciousness expanding on the planet and when you bring an idea in and it's never been said it's never really been cognized clearly into the form that we're in now it needs to be repeated many many times I mean it's just sometimes a sentence will come to me and I'll just want to say it again and again and again until it sort of lands into the collective consciousness and there's so many ideas like in, in my books the idea like men going to their cave you know, I must have taught that for you know well that's in over 50 million books for example it has become a meme of become a part of the consciousness of the planet to where it's common sense. You know, things like people say, oh, that pushes his butt. Somebody brought that idea into the world, and it's like a symbol that means a lot of different stuff, but it, it was brought into this consciousness. And it makes sense of these phenomena. Our theme today is the whole idea of turning thoughts to things. What's the process by which an idea, a belief, a state of consciousness becomes a material manifestation outside of you in the material world? And John was giving us some fascinating examples from his early life in the earlier segments of the show where he was talking about having these impulses and suddenly they were manifesting, he was acting on them and even though there were obstacles, even though maybe it wasn't, it wasn't smooth to start with, eventually the thing he desired would manifest as an objective reality and I was so so curious about that. I also wanted to ask you, John, if you were talking to somebody who has trouble reaching that state of access to the expanded consciousness, some people try, some people meditate and yet they don't feel anything. They don't feel they're able to go anywhere in consciousness. They feel as though they're pretty much still just trapped there inside their own heads. If you aren't feeling the ability to access that state of consciousness, what's the best next step to you? Well, I think that people need to understand some of the dynamics of, you know, a practice that will allow them to access their inner creativity. There's many, many practices, and maybe the practice they're using is not the right one for them. Now, I can only speak from what has really changed my life, which was, you know, over 45, 50 years ago, I was it, I guess, 40 years ago, 44 years ago, I learned Transcendental Meditation, and that practice is something that if one was to do, it's, you know, that was really a new thing back in those days. Uh, now, mindfulness, meditation, they're common things, but back then, that was sort of on the creative edge, and when people practice those techniques, generally, when I hear people saying it today, they often say, oh, you know, it's, I feel bored when I'm doing it, and it's uh, hard to do. And what I like to explain is how the brain actually operates and the purpose of those techniques to a certain extent is when you're really interested in something and you're motivated to do something or something gives you pleasure, all those different experiences actually are, have to do with a brain chemical called dopamine. And dopamine, what it does, it gives us pleasure and it motivates us. So to find one's mission and purpose, it should be something that stimulates higher levels of dopamine and it gives you pleasure. So from that point of view, you want to follow things that give you pleasure and and look at what you're holding back on. But that's a tricky place because there's a lot of bad things like sugar and drugs and illicit sex and pornography and, uh, you know, there's lots of things that can produce pleasure but 
afterwards it doesn't make you feel good. So that's a challenge as well. But when you have something that inspires you, that it excites you. We talked about, you know, in my life, one of the symbols as signals is when the hairs stand up on my arm. You know, when, when I get those moments, I take really big notice and I say, okay, this is an important idea. This is an important person I want to meet. This is somebody I want to study with. Is it when you're inspired by someone or something, that's really a key factor of something that stimulates dopamine. It's like your consciousness giving you an extra buzz. It's giving you a signal up there. You know, when I watched the, I think it was American Idol, you know, the judges would always say, oh, I know you're going to be a winner because that my arms are telling me so. The hairs are standing up on, on their end. And that's when something new is coming into the world, when new energy is coming into the world. Those hairs stand on the end. You know, you can watch it in those shows. You see those, you know, those young, artistic, very talented people and often say talent is God's expression in this world. It's the divine coming through. But as their talent unfolds and a new energy comes forth with greater guidance and support, it releases an energy. It's a new energy into the world. It's that person. It's their person's soul energy. As they're aligning with their authenticity, something new is coming into the world because we're all unique and different. And what's great about it is that even though I'm not a musician, when I watch excellence, I get excited. I get inspired because it awakens the excellence in me. And so in response to your question, it took a long way to get there. In response to your question, is surrounding yourself or, or creating opportunities where you can interact with people who are expressing excellence. Excellence is just our talent as well, but excellence in their talent can really help to awaken it within ourselves. It motivates us to be our own best self as opposed to kind of being depressed, kind of being a cynical. Or and, and some people aren't depressed or cynical, but what they've done is given up. And so they get their pleasure by overeating sugar, drugs, overwatching TV, oversleeping, you know, overdoing things keeps them from feeling the pain in your soul because you're not achieving your soul's purpose. And so they all go hand in hand. When you see very creative people in their lives, often what you'll see is a lot of, of, of um, pain and struggle and so forth because they're tapped in. And once you're tapped in, and that takes keeps practice coming to that place of creativity, whenever you step out of it, you become very acutely aware that you're not in touch with that wonderful place. Mm. It's like if you grew up in a beautiful home and now you're living in a shack, uh, you'd be aware of what you're missing. If you grew up in a shack, you know, that's okay. But once you sort of tasted the, the elixir of the gods... Uh, <laughs> And you miss out on it. It's very depressing. It's like for me, I'm like a highly tuned instrument. Uh, if I'm not doing my purpose every day, I would feel depression right away. I would just feel this huge void of, well, what am I doing here in this world? Well, and lots of people ask themselves, what am I doing here in this world? Well, there's no answer to that. You then have to start doing things that inspire you. And if you don't, nothing inspires you, then you have to do things that are in service of someone who needs what you have. That's the whole key is where could I be needed? And it could be as simple as, you know, here I am as a as a, a writer and a teacher about relationships, but let's say I didn't know what I needed. I could just go carry somebody's bags for them. And at least if they if they needed me, I would begin to awaken that part of me that feels needed because that's our soul's purpose. You know, we are all, and we get down to that the common good in all of us, we're really here for the common good of everyone. And and then we find our niche in that. But we need to keep feeling that we're taking action in our lives to fulfill the needs of others. Now, when you're meditating, you're not doing anything for others objectively. But if you have the intent, I'm doing this for a period of time so that I can fulfill the needs of others, then it can have that effect. It's a step process. But we always have to be very clear what our intent is, is to be of service. Even if we don't know what it is, it's to be better at serving in whatever ways we 
can find at this point. I love those two pointers. I know that for me, meditation actually is addictive. I, I just can't do without it. It, it. it is my drug. I, all of these things happen in my brain when I do it. And I really want to do it every every day. And the other is service. I think that we can serve. And sometimes we are serving mechanically. Sometimes we don't feel like serving. And we do serve. And there's a lot of, lot of value in that. John talked about the importance of meditation and how meditation takes you there. And also about the importance of service. Just doing things for other people. And even if you don't feel anything, just do it mechanically anyway. John, one of the, the fun things I do sometimes when I'm uh, at Omega or teaching at Esalen or, or a lecture at, at some big conference where there, there, there's a lot going on is at when when people are having lunch or dinner, I'll be at the table. People won't know who I am. And I'll just quietly pick up everyone's dishes and take them to the kitchen, maybe maybe even go to the kitchen and help wash the dishes. And uh, and it, it just it, it's, it's so important to realize that, you know, that, 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 that that's always an avenue of service, chopping wood, carrying water. You can always just go and, and do that. And you may not necessarily feel like it, but I, I, I want to make sure that I never get to the point where I think that the world exists for, for my convenience and um, I, I'm, I'm above clearing people's dishes from the table and taking them to the kitchen and washing them. So I think acts of service are a wonderful way to, to spark that ability of ourselves to stay in tune with the infinite. Yeah, and so back to meditation, we were talking about it. What, what I see today is one of the functions of meditation is to upregulate these dopamine receptor sites. Okay, we talked about dopamine is that's what motivates us and excites us and so forth. Mission and purpose comes from dopamine. Success stimulates dopamine. Danger stimulates dopamine. And junk food and drugs also stimulate dopamine. So they call heroin. Heroin actually comes from the root hero. And it, you take a drug and it makes you feel like a hero instead of actually taking action to feel like a hero. So the more we have these stimulants that make us feel good when we're not feeling that good, uh, we take these stimulants. It disconnects us from the pain inside ourselves which would motivate us to move through that and, and get get up and do something. Get out get out there and, and be loving and be nice or work hard or you know, whatever you're you're needing to do there for your for your growth and your, your situation. What we do is people don't realize that they're experiencing a kind of suffering because as soon as they even get close to that, they will feel a boredom, a flatness, an itch itchiness to eat sugar or eat junk food or to yell at their partners or, you know, to to do something to keep from feeling what they're really feeling. And when you meditate, people today are so bored when they meditate, beginners, uh, and they think, oh, I can't do it, it's too hard, whatever. And that's because we're so wired up in our modern society of immediate gratification. We want immediate gratification. Everything has to be now, 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 now. What that means is that we're sort of functioning at this higher level of dopamine stimulation. We depend upon immediate gratification to feel alive. And the normal gratification, which would actually give us peace and calm and lasting energy and happiness and the ability to experience deeper meditation is all of that comes if we slow things down and that's the point of meditation is to slow things down and you know when I learned uh, it was very different it wasn't as boring as for many people who do it now because we you know life was not as fast paced you know uh, uh, 40 years ago if you watch movies a great meditation for people just to see the state we're in is to get a 1930s black and white movie on Netflix and watch it and you'll see the movies are slow, so 
slow. You'll be thinking, how could anybody stay awake in one of these movies? And But to them, that was all very exciting. Uh, it was big screen. It was stimulation. It was digital. So what's happening is our brains are down-regulated. The dopamine receptor sites are desensitized. And by, you know, a good 20 minutes of meditation every day uh, can help to rebuild those, restore those, and they come back up so that you feel more lively, you feel more interested, but also not so demanding of immediate gratification and that tendency of addictiveness becomes less. That is so interesting, and the ability of the the, the, the the brain to slow down is also crucial in attention. Whenever we slow ourselves down deliberately, even if we talk more slowly or tune it to somebody with a slower pace than us, then that forces the brain to pay attention. It's not just running on autopilot. It's bringing us into the now, bringing us into the present, so it's, it's, it's powerful. I know, John, for me, too, I can literally feel the, 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 the change in my brain chemistry when I meditate in the morning. It's addictive. I, I wake up in the morning, and I simply, it's, 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 it's like a craving. I, I, I want to feel that good. In fact, I tell people in my eco-meditation classes that I'm, my, my agenda in this, this meditation workshop is to turn them into a drug addict. And the, the drug to which I want to addict them is the, those intensely pleasurable neurochemicals in their own brain. And once you've learned to addict yourself to that, it's intoxicating. You want to live life that, that life that way. You want to tune yourself that way. And I also think that when you tune yourself that way over and over and over again, you become much more able to hear those cadences of the universe. You become much more in tune with that what Larry Dossi calls the non-local mind. You had a, a word for it earlier, expanded consciousness. You access expanded consciousness. So when you're in that state and tuning yourself in that way, tuning your, your brain cells, tuning your neurochemicals that way every day, you develop, it's like fine-tuning. You begin to really hear those signals of that expanded consciousness that are blotted out when you're just going mechanically about your everyday activities. It's so beautifully said. And when people practice meditation, there's, there's another di- dimension that... What we just said is complete, and yet there's another dimension as well that I'm reflecting on right now, which is that you're actually using a part of the brain that's not conditioned. It's an unconditioned part. You're you're creating uh, conditioning for yourself when you do this, and, and when it's, you'll see this activity is happening and this going on, and your your middle part of the brain, which is very much more conditioned, you know, the automatic reactions. Oh, this is boring, so I want to get up and go. Oh, I'm not getting anything out of this. I want to get up and go. But by saying, no, I'm not letting that part of my brain control me. You're actually freeing yourself from the, the power of your conditioned brain and allowing yourself to come from that part of the brain which is receiving, in a sense, instruction or clarity or intention, intentionality from that uh, expanded intelligence of the universe or the non-local brain as you wanted to talk about non-local mind. John, in the next section, I'd like to talk about some of the more difficult aspects of what we've been chatting about. Things like, for example, illness and the shadow. You talked about how Maharishi, whose assistant you were for those years, eventually became very sick and that he had no model in his culture of caring for his body. And a lot of these gurus uh, are sick. I, I've met several. Um, one who died recently here in the Bay Area, head of a big spiritual organization, but uh, for his last few years, again, just very, very, very ill. And so let's talk about the physical illness component of those often well-known spiritual teachers. And also then, I'd like to talk about the shadow side if we have time. So go ahead and share with us 
how physicality plays into this. Well, I've been, having been in the guru circuit, know a lot of them, and the, one of the more popular ones, Muktananda, for example, wonderful, wonderful teacher, but had known nothing about nutrition at all, became diabetic himself, and was giving out candy to everybody at his events, because candy will produce lots of sugar. He says, Shakti loves the sugar. Yeah, it stimulates dopamine, <laughs> but it down-regulates dopamine. It causes down-regulation of insulin receptors. It makes you sick. And what if you look at some of these beautiful traditions, that, that teach meditation and enlightenment and the paths of, of devotion and so forth. They were written at a time, they were lived in a time where the water was pure, there were no GMOs, there were no pesticides, there was no toxicity, there were no processed foods, there was no high fructose corn syrup, none of that stuff. So they didn't have access to that. They might have, well, The only vice they had access to was wine. <laughs> and even that's not so bad, you know, but it's not even close to what our modern diet is like. So what happens is, you know, you have... Uh, one once you start running higher consciousness, you're now running your brain like a Ferrari. High-performance brain requires high-performance food. And what we're doing is giving ourselves higher consciousness and the cheapest quality food that there is. And what I found is, for example, for myself, I was running at very high consciousness throughout the 90s with huge amounts of success, massive audiences all the time. I, you know, I'm still doing it, but I do it as intensely and, and wrote a book every year. So I was really high-performing. And not being anything aware of having to supplement my brain. And so I got Parkinson and I cured it very quickly on a natural way by providing my brain with extra nutrition. I think anybody who practices higher consciousness techniques as a high performing brain needs to take extra supplements because our diet just doesn't provide it. Even the vegetables that we eat today, uh, typically, you know, unless you're getting really, really good ones, organic and, and soil that's never had pesticides, you're going to be deficient in the actual nutrients that your brain needs. And so I eat for recreation because I'm still traveling and so forth, a healthy recreation, but I really get my nutrition from a lot of the supplements I take. And the one for higher consciousness I think is so important is a substance that's in mother's milk called erratic acid. And you bond erratic acid to minerals, to magnesium, to potassium, to zinc, and uh, lithium, and, and another one, magnesium, calcium, potassium, zinc, and lithium. Yeah, those are five alkalizing minerals for the brain. It's high performance. Even, even when I was a yogi studying Ayurveda, we still had to have high-performance brains then, which was uh, taking amalak, amla fruit, which is similar to goji berry, which is super high in vitamin C. And, and they didn't have the science, the scientific words we used, but they knew that if you were going to meditate, if you were going to do from a higher-performance brain, serve the world, you needed to take extra vitamin C. These substances or these natural fruits are super, super high, 500 times more vitamin C per square inch in a, in a goji berry. Than, a, than an orange. So it, this is stuff that the brain needs more vitamin C because it's an antioxidant to neutralize the free radical damage which is produced whenever you make energy. And you know, if you're a high-performance brain, your, your brain's making tons of energy and it takes tons of energy to sustain higher consciousness and that produces free radicals. People don't realize that. We hear free radicals is just from toxicity and it does come from toxicity but it also comes from energy production. It's a natural byproduct and if you're going to amp up your energy level, you've got to amp up your own body's antioxidant level. And again, another substance that they had that we don't have today is they, they would drink like in India, they had raw milk, you know, raw milk 
has amazing properties. It has uh, cysteine that produces glutathione that's the ultimate antioxidant. Today, when you pasteurize milk, you, it doesn't turn into glutathione. So we have anybody with uh, ADD, with depression, anxiety, all those mental issues that people are having to deal with, they, their bodies aren't making nearly as much glutathione as they're supposed to. It's very low levels of this antioxidant. So they're getting free radical damage. So this is the danger, the danger of high consciousness. If you don't complement it with extra nutrition, then you'll have have more health challenges, which I saw and I continue to see with all these gurus. Yes, and it's such a shame when somebody's ability to serve is cut short by that kind of nutritional or physical limitation. Talk, talk about the shadow, John. We talked about this as well and about how there's also a shadow side to many of these cities, many of these abilities, many of these breakthroughs, and that unless that's acknowledged and worked with, it can lead to all kinds of part of the of the teacher and the student. So actually, we have to believe that because I'm afraid we're totally out of time, John. When I start talking to you, I think our last conversation we had in person lasted four hours. So it's so hard to stop. Thanks so very much for being here. I appreciate you so much. It's always a pleasure to talk with you and the great work you do. It's so inspiring. Bless you. John's website is Mars. Venus.com. You will find lots of information there in plain, simple English about those supplements and, and which ones to choose, also his books and other words, for another fascinating glimpse of how you can live with high-energy health. Thanks again. In just a moment. 